Welcome to episode 40 of the Talent Athlete Podcast, Lessons Learned Building RailsThemes.com. I'm your host, Jared Brown, and my co-host is Brandon Corbin. <laughs> Hi. And we have Anthony Panazzo on the episode. Hey, Anthony, how's it going? Good. How are you, Jared? I am doing excellent. <laughs> okay, no, I, no, wait, wait. I'm now. See, I'm gonna. I'm. I, we have to make it. That that might have seemed a little boring to those who have listened to our past shows, and it it, it is because we started over. Because Jared <laughs> would not uh, hold the mess ups. We messed. Up. We all messed up, and it was, it was it was awesomely mess. awkward. So so now that's why. Like I said, hi. He didn't insult me like he did in the other intro. Uh, <laughs> so I'm here to keep it real, my friends. Nice. We appreciate it. Well, before we get into it want to talk about our sponsor for this episode which of course is ourselves the talentopoly job board but the, the job board is pretty awesome we've got some great jobs on there and the one i'd like to tell you about is experience.net developer wearer of many hats yep. <laughs> you heard that right that's the title of it wearer of many hats this is a chance to join a small net team that needs someone who is well-rounded and is willing to do a lot more than just development uh you need to interface with customers deal with management um be cool i don't know a lot of different stuff build reports build reports gotta do a lot of different things you gotta wear a lot of hats a lot of hats that's literal you're expected to wear a different hat a different hat every day (laughs) they're very fashionable though so you can go like crazy it could be a big feather hat I mean, you can go. You can have fun with it. I wonder what the hat budget is like for this company. <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. I could tell you what the salary is for it. The salary is in the 90K range. There you go. You should have started the damn thing off with that. I should have. Then everybody would have paid attention. From now on, we'll just start it that way. Yeah, 90000 Now, is it is it a local? Is it Where's the location? It is. It's in Indianapolis, Indiana. Okay. And... So- it's being posted through Brooksource, which is a recruiting firm. So if you'd like to find out more about the position, you should go to townopoly.com slash jobs. Scroll down to where you see experience.net developer wearer of many hats. Click on it and then a click, click apply for job and you will be all set. And maybe you'll find some other cool jobs on there while you're surfing around. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. We'll, we don't promise that. No, we do promise that. All right. Let's talk about what we're drinking. We'll start with you, Brandon. Oh, geez. I'm having Chateau Michael. Um, and it's a Sauvignon Blanc, Columbia Valley, and it's like cheap. And I don't even know where I got it. It was in my house. And so I'm drinking it. And it's a meh. It's a meh. Which is a meh. What, what, what number? How would you quantify that? Um, I would say it's, it starts as a four. So pretty low. It starts low. But then, where, where does then it it's That's it's matters. it it the it upticks pretty quick. <laughs> so I don't know if it just is destroying all my taste buds and everything in my mouth is just turning to mush. <laughs> and so, but hey, it's it was cheap. I don't even know where I get it. And and I'm not even saying the name right. So ignore the last ten seconds. We need Melanie Archer on just the first five minutes of every episode. There you go. So she, she nailed it. Pronounce it for you. Yeah, that was tell beautiful. you about what foods you can pair it with and uh, how much region. of an idiot I am when it comes <laughs> to wine. Exactly. Awesome. Well, I, I'm pretty excited. I picked up a four pack of this stuff called Boddington's. It's a uh, pub ale. They actually import it from Britain. It says that right on the bottle, right on the can. So it must be true. It's a uh, one pint and smooth and creamy is what it says. And it, it is smooth and creamy. It's very good. <laughs> That's... Yeah, I think I've had it. It's pretty good. 
Yeah, I like it. It's got one of those widgets in it. So when you pour it, it's supposed to put a million bubbles in it is what the can says. But it's basically trying to imitate the, uh, the hand crank style of, you know, of an English tap. So that they don't put them under, they don't use this, and I don't, I don't, I'm talking on things I don't know at this point, but they don't know, it's called like a beer engine, and they don't, they don't carbonate beers like we do in America, so it doesn't have that sharp, tingly bubbles in it, it's just a much smoother, less bubble-filled experience. Anyway, I'll stop talking about it now. That's <laughs> cheese. Also, sponsor or what? Yeah, no kidding. That would be awesome, but no. Just delicious beer. Anthony, what are you drinking? Uh, so I have a combination, uh, one part cold water and the other part formerly warm, but now just kind of cool green tea. So uh, no booze Watering down tonight. the green tea, huh? Well, it's like I have two cups. So. Oh, double fisting it, I yeah. see. This is this is getting this is getting embarrassing to be totally honest because I think um, the last four or five maybe people that we've had on the show weren't drinking and we're all like hey, this is what we're drinking <laughs> it's yeah, kind of Melanie. embarrassing they're like hey look we're alcoholics everybody's like yeah yeah i'm having milk and i'm having green tea and i'm having all this healthy stuff right melody <sighs> though in fairness would have had some awesome local brew but she just didn't have time to get it that day you know they always have their excuses they do that's true i'm just saying all right let's jump into the topic before we uh, get right into Rails themes and what you've learned from it, Anthony, tell us a little bit about how you got started in the world of computer programming. Just give us a little background. Sure. Uh, well, let's see. I started off, I really liked video games, and uh, my family had like an Apple II laying around, so I learned how to kind of program on that using BASIC and, uh, you know, had a couple other computers through high school and stuff. And then, uh, you know, went to college for computer science and then... Worked at a big company, real big company, and then kind of worked for a smaller company, like 70-ish people, and then worked for a startup, and then... So you just went from big to medium to super small? Yeah. I think it's uh, fits my personality and style a little bit more. I think you can make bigger impact in smaller organizations. So um, That has to be pretty interesting, having seen all three sizes then. Yeah, I think uh, you know generally what you hear about big companies is usually true. I mean, it's going to be a little slower paced, uh, you know... I think a lot more distractions, like, you know, you're at least when I was doing it, you couldn't work from home quite as much or do stuff like that. So a lot more meetings, do the number of meetings go down as you go down that ladder? Definitely. Yeah. I just like the freedom of, okay, you know, what, what do we have to do? Let's get this done. And then, you know, quit wasting time, I guess. So you're working for the startup. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, and then uh, you know, just started doing some like contracting, consulting, um, and then, you know, during one of those projects, I was working on a Rails project where we basically said, okay, we need some sort of design, um, and and you know, so we pulled in a design from like a third party site and tried to integrate that, and I was like, man, this is really difficult, but it'd be really cool if there was some way to, you know. Uh, do this very easily, um, you know. So in order to uh, take my Ruby on Rails website and then have some sort of magic command that I run and it installs this great looking theme, like that would be really sweet. Uh, but instead, I spent like eight or ten hours, you know, just kind of trying to mess around with the CSS and HTML to get everything to look right and you know to actually work with the Rails uh, asset pipeline and stuff like that. Right, and you're already hundreds of dollars, billable dollars into it at that point. Sure. Yeah, so you know, I was thinking, man, there's kind of an opp- seems like there's an opportunity here to if you can build a system that would allow you to do this, and somebody could buy this. You know, they could buy it for, 
you know, a quarter or half or whatever of what they normally would have spent time-wise or money-wise on a designer or somebody else or, you know, their own time and materials, um, you know, and then you can, you know, kind of cut it both ways. Like they get, you know, a nice looking design for not very much money, not very much time, and you get some money based on having done that. So, Okay. So that that's the nugget of the idea for Rails themes then. Mm-hmm. How, where do you go from there? So you have this great idea. What's the next thing you do? Well, you know, I was just kind of, I just threw it out to Twitter one day, you know, just posting about it and saying, hey, you know, would anybody use this? And a couple of people replied and we kind of talked about it a little bit. And then I mentioned it to my friend Eliza because we were working on a different project at this time. Um, and she's like, oh, that sounds really good. Uh, we should do that. So I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah, that'd be fun. And then like the next day she's like, all right, but seriously, we're doing this. Here's the first meeting, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, all right. Sounds good. And I think that was like really important because I don't think I would have done as done anything with it or as much with it, you know, if, if we didn't really get serious about it right away. So, um, was this the first startup like this that you've done? Um, I, you know, kind of done a few other things, uh, just different ideas here and there. We we're working on one project for startup weekend called awesome controller, um, which I probably don't have too much time, but basically it's a way that you can play your old video game systems using your Wii, uh, moat or your PS3 controller. So it uses Bluetooth to basically get in there and, um, you can, you can play your regular NES with your Wii mode or something like That's that. That's how I know you. That's yeah. it. That's it. That's <laughs> it all comes. It all comes together. Hey, real quick though. You, you said that you guys not, you, you you said a couple or you tweeted a couple things about Would this be interesting? You got some feedback. Mm-hmm. Was that the only testing that you really did as far as kind of figuring out if there was a market or not? Um, no, I would say, you know, I'm kind of a fan of lean startup approach and, you know, validating, you know, your, your business before you try to build a lot of stuff. And so we did uh, a decent amount of like kind of surveying people, talking to people that we knew, um, kind of using our own intuition. Uh, I, I wouldn't say we did as much as I would like to have maybe, but I think there's kind of a balance there where it's like you could spend all day validating something and not have anything to show for it. But on the other hand, you don't want to get so far down the path of just building something that you realize there's no market whatsoever for it. So I don't know. I think we kind of try to strike a balance there. Um, so you mentioned that Eliza was really critical in getting you to do this to really totally. like she was the catalyst for it then. Yeah. And so, I'd say she's, and she's definitely done a ton on every, every aspect of it as well. Marketing development. So, you so know. she's been your co-founder throughout this. Yeah. yeah. What, what types of, what would you say to somebody who is just starting a startup, they're at step one of this thing, and it, they're just going to do it alone. Like That's their current thinking. They came up with the idea, they're a developer, they think they can try to hack their way through the design aspect of it. And why would you tell them, first of all, would you tell them that they need a co-founder? And if so, why? I don't know. I mean, it's a that's a good question. I think people have been debating this in the blogosphere and Twitter spheres and whatnot for a while. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, what, what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And I think you want to try to find someone who can complement those and, and, you know, kind of, you know, if you're really not that great at the marketing side of it and maybe somebody else isn't that great, you might have weakness, but you might also be able to say, Hey, I read this over here. And the other person said, yeah, let's try that out. And then you can kind of work together. So I think kind of want to find somebody who you can just work well with. Um, and for me, it's a big motivation because, you know, the work that I do is one aspect of it, but you know, if, if that's the only person working on it, then whatever you do is the only thing that gets done. So um, sometimes it's kind of motivating just to, to wake up and say, oh, wow, uh, you know, something else is done that I didn't even know we were working on. Cool. 
you know, so I find that like kind of motivating and vice versa. So, so what, what, give give us an example of a time when Eliza really surprised you and you thought, wow, I'm really happy. I have a co-founder. I mean, definitely. Like, I feel like she's really taking the lead on all the marketing and, you know, kind of email newsletter, that sort of thing. And whereas I wouldn't have really like jumped into it because I think I come from more of like a engineering background and granted it's interesting, but it's like, I wouldn't have really thought to do it and do it as early and, you know, have a certain voice to it. So I don't know. I, I thought that was really, that really helped out a lot. Okay. Uh, you're doing this as a part-time business, right? I mean, this isn't your full-time gig. Correct. Yeah. This is just, um, you know, we decided, Hey, let's work on this and get out a version of it and then, you know, kind of see how, how much further we want to go with it. And at this point we're just kind of, you know, we're designing new themes and doing other kind of things, but it's not really a full-time thing. Like it's still doing a lot of other contracting or other kind of work basically. Can it be uh, successful if you're not doing it full-time? I guess it remains to be seen. Uh, you know, I definitely, I think it would help if we spent more time on it, but on the other hand, it's a, you know, kind of a cash flow issue, you know, where it's like, if you're not making enough money off of it, you kind of have to do other things in order to make money unless you have some sort of like capital base. Right. Right. What do you think, Brandon? Do you think, you think a startup can be successful if you're doing it as a part-time business? Yeah. Yes. Uh, ab- absolutely it can. And, and it, it, I think it all comes down to that. When can you make that leap? Right. When when is that right time to make that link? But but what they've done is can I so I can go to the website right now and I can give you my credit card. You can take my credit card and I can download a theme and I can install stuff. Yep. Yeah. If that's I mean, if that's the case, then it literally is just a marketing play. I agree to a degree. I mean, there was content and content. Yes. And and there Um, were some technical issues there, you know, as far as just like, you know, how do we actually make this? install well and install correctly and for different kind of browsers, different kind of plugins or gems that you might use with your Rails application. Um, so, you know, yeah. I'd say it wasn't trivial as far as the technical thing, but I think at this point, now that we've solved some of those problems, I think it is a lot more marketing and I think I'm starting to realize that now where it's like we signed on a newsletter article today and someone bought a theme, you know, so it's like yeah. I think you can definitely see a correlation. Well, so, of, so how many people did you send that to to get that one theme? Um, I, I mean, again. Say, you know, if you don't want to say, it, you don't want to say it. Sure. I mean, so just to give kind of like a little context. So we started um, before we, you know, built the website and did all the other kind of things. One of the one of the things was to validate, OK, are there enough people in this market that would be willing to buy this or interested in this topic at least? Um, so we set up a goal to say, OK, we want to have a certain amount of subscribers by the time we launch. So we said, OK, let's let's start with like 1,500 email subscribers on MailChimp to um, basically say that, yeah, I'm interested in this and, you know, I want to hear more, that kind of thing. Um, so we started off and there wasn't very many. We tweeted about it a few times, um, put a, put an ad in Ruby weekly, I think, which is very like targeted toward Ruby developers, which I think is really important. Before you get into the Ruby weekly, what is not very many? Can you quantify that? Um, sorry, what was this reference to? The number of subscribers you have. You answered that like a politician, my friend. Well, I, I just didn't, I what didn't was remember. that in reference to? I know, I'm oh, sorry. That was beautiful. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't remember before. saying not very many, so I don't remember. I broke your train of thought. I apologize. See, that's a politician but, move right there. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to go step by step because okay. you were about to launch into the Ruby Weekly part. But before we get to that, how like do you remember about how many emails you got signed up just by tweeting and some like you know just grassroots type of marketing? 
Uh, it's hard to remember at this point. Um, I would say a lot of this happened probably like February or March of this year, and it's now September. Are we um, talking a hundred less? I would say probably somewhere in that ballpark, maybe maybe a little more. I, I think both of us have you know a lot of people that we know that are Ruby related um, okay. developers. So. Yeah, because all, all you know really what it comes down. So like if that if you do this one emailing and you let's say you have even you know a thousand people that you hit, hmm. and that you get one sale. I mean, that's like, I, I would be like, yes. <laughs> that's now, pretty sweet. It's a matter of just getting as many Ruby developers to be able to communicate, or you to, to be able to communicate with as many Ruby developers as possible. So that's pretty badass. Yeah. Okay. So Ruby Weekly, tell us why did you advertise in Ruby Weekly? How much did it cost and what was it worth it? Um, I'm not positive or don't remember exactly what it costs, but, um, you know, we, we looked at, okay, what are the channels that we can reach people who are either Ruby developers or Ruby project managers or just people who are you know, generally going to have an impact on the purchasing of a theme, right? Um, and so we, we looked at it and said, okay, there are some like publications or some things that people read. So Ruby Weekly is just a uh, newsletter that um, a guy, I think Peter Cooper, puts out every week that has, here are the... 50 coolest links about Ruby this week. Um, and so and then every now and then he'll put an advertisement in there. So we said, okay, cool. This would be a really good way to get in front of a lot of early adopters, people who are like really interested in their craft. You know, they're, they're interested in improving because they're reading these links, they're reading all these articles. Um, so this would be a really good way to grow. So we put that in there and, you know, I, I, like, you know, I think you're asking me a lot for numbers and stuff like that. I'm not sure what the exact impact was, but, you know, I think it was very high to say, okay, people that are not in our first order social networks are going to be able to see this. Um, so it's nice to have, if you're starting a new business, to have some sort of way to reach people like that. Um, you know, so it say, was pretty significant, right? The number of signups. When I was talking to Eliza, she said that almost half of your signups she felt was attributed to Ruby Weekly. Okay, well, let's go with that then. So, and by <laughs> half, I mean that would be like 750 or so. That was half of sure. the 1500. Yeah, and, and remember at this point, we have no product. You know, all our value proposition is saying we're going to have this at some point and we'll send you cool links or, you know, useful information going forward. And people are willing to give you their email address just in, you know, in the spirit of, okay, I, I believe you, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, and I think we were careful with that to say, okay, we don't want to spam them too much. We limited our emails to once per week at most just to say. And we also gave people a link, little link at the bottom to say, hey, don't tell me anything until you launch just because, you know, I'm, I'm not that interested, but I am interested. That's pretty smart. Yeah. I think it's a good way to make sure you don't get a lot of signups because MailChimp also, you know, kind of tracks how many people unsubscribe, do these other kind of things. So it's important to kind of keep them happy as well. And I've been receiving the newsletter from the, I think the first one you guys sent, and I think you guys have done a really good job of instilling personality and some fun into the news, into these emails. They're not that long. They're really to the point. And even before you guys launched, I started really like from new, from newsletter to newsletter, you really built the concept of your brand and mm -hmm. the identity of it. So, you know, I quickly realized this is what Rails Themes is about. And you kept that email list warm which is the other thing I liked, you know, you guys doing it every week, you're pretty good about doing that. So it wasn't like three months go by and you get this email out of the blue that this thing launched and you don't even remember signing up to be notified. You know, I think that happens a lot to people. I know it happens to me. 
Yeah, it always feels like there's something more important to do, but I think that's maybe the most important thing you can do. So it's just kind of paradoxical, especially coming from a developer mindset. You know, you think, okay, I have to do all these features in order for my site to be live and all this other kind of stuff. But if you don't have customers, you don't have a business. So so you guys reached 1,500 before you launched, right? Uh, yeah, I think that was the goal. And we kind of kept it fuzzy, you know, a little bit to say we, we only manually updated that. We didn't actually pull from the MailChimp API or anything like that. And that was just a, you know, we want to keep it low overhead mm-hmm. to do that. Um, and then uh, I think one of the trying to hit before RailsConf, which was in and, and at the end of April, and that was kind of another big point where we could do a lot of kind of like, you know, marketing, advertising, whatever you want to call it, and uh, just kind of talk to people also and say, hey, what are you looking for in a theme? You know, how can we help this be better? That sort of thing. So when, when we talked a couple episodes back to James Payton, he was telling us he, to promote Emailium, went to a, a few conferences, and they were, you know, he had to pay thousands of dollars to attend these conferences, but he found that they were some of the best, that was some of the best time he spent pre-marketing his idea, his product. Would you, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Did you think RailsConf had this great, you know, was it worth it? Did it have the return on investment for Rails themes? And I know Eliza was probably going to go to it anyway, but let's just assume she was going to it for Rails themes. Is it, was it worth it? Would you recommend that? My guess would be, yeah. I mean, I think we got a lot of positive exposure from that. Um, one of the things that we did for that, um, someone randomly suggested at some point, hey, what if you guys did like a coloring book and pass that out and people could like color on it during, um, you know, the conference when they were bored or when they were trying to take notes or whatever. And so you just hand that out, some crayons, some coloring books. And so we said, okay, that's cool. Um, and contacted like an illustrator, made made this like 12-page coloring book thing and then put, you know, crayons in it and then basically – handed it out and people uh, that we had like a little coloring contest thing where basically people could color in this one picture or any picture they wanted, submit it to the site and the people could upvote it or whatever. And then based on, you know, if you won, then you got a, you got like a free theme, you know, and you just kind of got a little bit more exposure out there. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, and so that was like a good way to, you know, do that quickly and, and just kind of see that. And I think, you know, it just kind of adds a lot of legitimacy instead of some random business, you know, it's okay. I know these people, I've seen them around, they're they're serious enough about Ruby that they go to conferences. So, okay, I so kind of answer your question. Yeah, absolutely. I remember seeing some tweets from Eliza. I think it was while she was traveling to RailsConf, and she was saying, "I'm going to have these coloring books, and even if you don't know me, I'm going to be the girl wearing. I think it was a red shirt or some color. You know, this is yeah. what I'm going to be wearing. Come up to me and get a coloring book." So she was really outgoing about it. Totally. Yeah, it's fun to see the personality come through into the brand and for it to be kind of a fun brand. I like that you guys are doing that. All right, so technical challenges. You kind of alluded to some of the things to Brandon a few minutes ago about the technical challenges you've had to overcome. Can you give us a few examples of things that have been pretty challenging in, in building Rails themes? Well, let's see. So, I mean, I think the goal is to you you buy a theme online you have some sort of command line installer. You type one command, and your your theme magically works, which sound might sound easy, but there's a lot of like kind of complicated. All right, where does this file need to go? What is the exact you know um, order of things that need to happen here as far as installation? Or and we have this kind of whole like uh, process in the background of taking a theme and, and making it into the different sorts of um, you know kind of styles that people need. So. 
Um, there are several different kind of templating languages that people commonly use, a few different form builders. And so we basically create a different permutation of each of those for, you know, depending on what uh, things are in your gem file. Gem file is basically um, a list of all the different plugins and certain things that you use. Um, so it's a good way of understanding, okay, what are the things that are in this person's app that they might want to customize or to do um, to make it look better? Um, so we, so there are a lot of different permutations and the testing of that was kind of complicated. Um, just at this point, a lot of manual testing, uh, we also use like some screenshot kind of grabbing things to say, okay, what does it look like in IE? What does it look like in Safari? That sort of thing. Are those tools or home built? Like are um, these services or home built tools that do the screenshotting? Services. What, which services are you using? Uh, sorry, I can't remember. Um, I think, I mean, there, there are definitely a few out there. Um, I think as we were looking into it, you know, we just saw, okay, here's a bunch of different ones. So, and then you guys have to review the screenshots afterwards, but you can just see very quickly if it rendered correctly. Yeah. And then the nice thing is then you can put those screenshots also in like your kind of, uh, marketing copy or whatever to say, Hey, here's what it looks like in these different browsers or whatever. Um, so that's kind of nice. Excellent. So which plugins, I know you formtastic is one of the form gems that it will work yeah. with. And then what are, simple, what are some other ones? simple form um, is, is the other major one that a lot of people use. Um, let's see. What was it like building a gem? Was that is that um, a pretty straightforward process? It was the first time. Yeah, it was the first time that I had ever done that. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting. It was actually a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I think you can use Bundler, and you know it makes it a lot easier. Are you have you used uh, Have you ever built a gem? I have not. No. Okay. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not too bad. Um, and then kind of one of the things that I thought was useful as well was since we're doing a lot of like kind of file system operations, um, there is a file mocking um, gem that you can use for testing purposes. So I think it's called MockFS or FakeFS, yeah. Um, and basically you can say, pretend that I have this file system and I move this file to this other area, what, you know, all right, all right. I call this method in Rails themes, and it should do this. Uh, it should copy that file to this other area, just so you can verify. Okay, I'm copying things to the right place, you know, and I'm not overwriting some some important file somewhere. So, because I think that would really uh, reduce our credibility if we were installing things poorly or overwriting your, uh, you know, your operating system or something like that. How long would you say the initial build out of the gem and related? technical pieces took and are you now more of in a maintenance mode and that's not really a big problem or are you still spending a lot of time on the technical um i would say probably like three to four months of pretty solid you know working pretty decent amount um and i think now we're mostly where a lot of the technical stuff is pretty solidified um and so it's not really as much work on that side now it's more of the marketing and creating themes that sort of thing what what's a pretty solid amount when you work working a lot on it? Um, so I mean, one of the kind of practices that we used um, that I thought was helpful was in the early days to you know get on Skype and talk to each other pretty regularly, and also um, basically uh, she lives in Nashville, I live in Indianapolis, so it's about five hours away, uh, one different time zone. But we would basically travel to see each other, you know, like for like two or three days straight, and then just like try to work that whole time. Um, and I thought I thought that was pretty helpful, like to um, you know get a lot of the 
kind of details hammered out um, without having a lot of back and forth. Or you know, you send somebody an email, and then ten hours later they re- they respond. And by that time, you're completely out of the mindset of doing whatever you were doing. So I thought um, that was kind of a cool trick to, you know, basically compact the amount of work that we could do in a short period of time. So um, it you know it had a little bit of overhead in that I was tired afterwards, but it was uh, I think it was worth it. Versus you know I think if you do 40 hours of work over in one week versus 40 hours of work spread over four weeks, I think you're going to actually get more done during that um, that compacted period just because you're in the flow, you're thinking about things. It seems like the excitement would be there too that may not totally. be there when you're just working remotely. Yeah, I agree. And I think you're you're pushing both each other to say, okay, let's you know try to get as much done as we can and you know not look at Hacker News or whatever, right? You know. So – you don't have to like. Would you say that it's fine to have a co-founder that doesn't even live in the same state as you? Or next time around, would you want to look for somebody where you could do that more easily and more often, since it's so productive? It worked out well. I um, I don't think it's a requirement by any means. So, so how do you when you guys are working remotely? What tools and what techniques did you use to stay in sync? Um, so we use HipChat for just kind of like general chat messages, that sort of thing, staying on the same page. Um, I think we have some like GitHub hooks and stuff that push to that to say, hey, so-and-so committed this or, you know, uh, an exception just happened on production. You know, you should be aware of this. And not a whole lot of that really happens. But um, And then we use Sprintly for like just the general task project management sort of uh, thing. I don't really see too many advantages over Pivotal Tracker, but maybe it's just because I'm not using it, you know, all the features that they have. Have you used Sprintly? I haven't. I've been really interested in it. Give me a quick run through of what are the differences between Sprintly and Pivotal? Um, so, I mean, I would say the biggest thing is, you know, it's, it looks a lot nicer and it's a little bit more um, kind of easy to use, I guess, I feel like. Um, certain aspects of it like so it's very story oriented when you create a new story it literally has fields for as a i want to so that um and then you fill in these things so um you know a lot of times when i'm working on a pivotal tracker kind of project um uh, somebody'll just put in a story and they'll say user should be able to add this and then that's like the entire story so it's a little bit easier if you kind of give it a little more detail then you can figure it out you can figure out what you mean like three months later. Okay. So, so why would you use Pivotal? It sounds like you would rather just use Pivotal on future projects, right? Yeah. Um, What's the I would reasons s- for that or what are the reasons? I just don't really see a very compelling uh, you know, reason to use one over the other. So, And I've had a little bit more experience with Pivotal. But you know, I think Sprintly is nice. It sends you daily uh, email summary kind of things. And I'm not sure if Pivotal does that in some sense as well. Mm, um, that is and- nice. I think Sprintly, they were in beta and they were charging like $9 a month or something. Um, and I'm not sure what Pivotal does nowadays, but it seems like it's less. So, Brandon, uh, what what project management software do you like to use? You always ask me this damn question and the <laughs> answer is always the same. I love the answer. I don't use project management. No, you know what? The <laughs> only thing I use is uh, is Google Docs. I use a spreadsheet and it has three states it can be open closed or rejected and it's a line that explains what it is that's it that's all and i share it with whoever's on the project and you're responsible for doing your stuff that's it i would have thought you'd have something like the corbinizer to-do list for project management no it's yeah (laughs) i do it's called it's called a google spreadsheet 
Like you print it out and you have to snail mail it to the other people. Yes. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Don't judge. Well, I think there's something to be said there. I mean, I think having a really big backlog or, you know, having so many things that you need to keep track of that you can't keep track of them pretty easily is kind of an anti-pattern. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I think Brandon's talked about that in the past as far as to-do lists. Just yeah. don't keep them. If you can't keep it all in your head, then that's your natural way of getting rid of the extra. Well, yeah. have I told I got rid of the Corbinizer. You got rid of it? Well, I don't use it anymore. I okay. use Zero Inbox now. What's Zero Inbox? The whole concept of Zero Inbox oh, is okay. when an email comes in, yep. I delete it, I defer it, or I just leave it there until a later period of time when I'm actually going to do it. So I always know whatever I need to do just by going looking at my inbox. And I finish it and I archive it. Boom. Gone. So now I have you know four things in my inbox, and those are the things that I have to do. If you need me to do something, email me, and it will either get replied to, deleted, <laughs> forwarded to somebody else to do, or I will do it eventually because I want it out of my damn inbox. Amazing. All right, let's talk about social media a little bit. You guys use – we've talked a little bit about Twitter, but uh, when we were talking before this interview, you brought up a few things, some examples of ways that you guys use social media effectively to promote Rails themes. Can you give us some examples of things that you found worked well Sure. Um, so, I mean, I think one of the things that we're trying to do is, you know, keep building that brand, like you say, and just have a little bit more engagement. So if we can get somebody to reply to us or, you know, somebody to retweet it, it's like useful just for spreading the word and for, you know, getting people involved. And it's, with Ruby, it's kind of easy because there's a lot of information out there that you can try to share or you can contribute back. You know, say we are working on something, come up with a hard problem, you know, we can uh, record what we did and write it in a blog post and then, you know, kind of tweet it out or do something like that or have a Facebook post about it. Um, And then, you know, a lot of times we'll come up with just some like trivia questions like, hey, did you know you could do this? Or, hey, what's the easiest way to use this new feature of Rails 3? Reply back and, you know, blah, 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 right? And so just, you know, to kind of get people thinking about it and, you know, people who are using Twitter a lot and following that um, will be interested. And you're doing that from your Rails themes account. Correct. So they're, um, then they look at your profile, they see, oh, okay, and they click the link, hopefully, right, and go to the right. homepage. You know, hashtag Ruby, hashtag Rails. If people are searching for Ruby or Rails, they'll see those tweets a little bit more. Um, you know, and, and since it is, you know, we're not working on a full time or anything like that, uh, what we've been doing the last couple of months has been sit down and come up with like 12 tweets or, you know, uh, write it like like three blog posts each you know or something like that just to kind of have a buffer of things that we can eventually post and uh and basically do that so you queue up the blog posts and all the tweets right because you know i'm not always thinking about it but when i do think about it i want to write a lot of things just in one one go so i can just do that really quickly are you are you guys using buffer app um, I don't think so. Um, I think we actually have like a social media person who is helping us like post some of these things. And we have doing... a human being doing it. <laughs> yes. It, I was pushing a little bit for buffer at some point. Uh, I think it's, you can do it either way. Uh, I, the last time I looked at buffer, as far as scheduling stuff, it was more just like, it would put it in your buffer and then it would buff out, you know, whatever schedule you normally had it I'll so i think it it, i like it yeah <laughs> i guess that's a, a word but um so and then another another thing that we kind of been using to track those replies and do things like that is desk.com um and so this is just a way of 
anytime someone emails support at Rails Themes or if they tweet at us or other kind of events that happen, it basically goes into this one shared inbox and then we can um, you know, assign it to a certain person or reply or do whatever and it kind of keeps track of what is the history of this um, item. And so hopefully that you know, helps us be more responsive to people who have issues or have questions or anything like that. I, what was I that website again? Desk.com, right? Yes. And desk.com desk is a Salesforce-owned tool, I believe. But a question for you. The pricing on that seems mm-hmm. you get your first agent for free. And if I'm not mistaken, the second agent is in the 40s. It's like $49 or something. Do you guys pay for multiple agents or are you sharing an account? Um, I think we have multiple, and I think there's a plan where you can do basically you get charged based on how much time you spend in it. You're right. There is that. Yep. So basically, Eliza does a lot of the desk.com stuff, and I very rarely log into that. Okay. And and then when I do, um, you know, I try to get in, get out. But there was one time where I think it just got left open or there was some kind of issue there, and we got charged like pretty high amount of money. And so we just kind of talked. We talked to him and said, "Hey, I'm not sure how this happened. We've been closing it down very, you know, regularly. So, um, and they gave us a refund for that. You know, what what was a reasonable amount? So, nice. so that, that that was nice on their part. Do um, you find not, using a tool like that helps you guys be a lot better at customer service, or could you just monitor Twitter and and your email and just do it that way instead? Uh, I think it's possible. I. I don't really have a lot of data on the other side, I guess. So I would say if I were to do it again, I would probably use this again. Nice. Have you guys used it? Have you tried or demoed any other help desk software out there? Uh, not really. Uh, think- it, it seems like it, this is kind of an upcoming space for, you know, this is something people need to start thinking about. You know, the, being able to be good at customer service is really important. There are a lot more tools every day out there to choose from, and anything that makes it easier, in my opinion, seems really like you, you should jump at this. If it allows you to respond to somebody even 20 minutes quicker or that much more effectively, it's probably worth it, right? Yeah, and I, I think you know at this point, it's very early business, so it's kind of you want to be as responsive as you can, but also you want to not outsource that or anything like that because you know I think there's a lot of learning that you can get from just having those interactions. If somebody says, hey, I couldn't figure out how to do this, and then you say, oh, well, you know, they're having a problem. Maybe it's not documented very well. Maybe it's broken. Maybe there's these other issues, and so you can try to fix that before it becomes a bigger problem. Do you guys follow up with people who have already bought your themes? Um, I have some work in progress right now. I just need to get a email token or something else like that. And we're going to try to send, you know, after, after someone purchases it to send them an email, you know, a few days afterwards, just to say, Hey, how did it go? And then that we can, we can get some testimonial, some more feedback about that. Um, so it would like, how would they get back to you? Is it just going to be through email or would you pipe it through some other feedback gathering system? Um, so the way that it's going to work, at least in the current implementation, is uh, we send them an email. They click on a link that says it was good, it was bad, or I didn't install it yet. And then that we record that, and it gets ta- they get taken to our website where they can just fill out a little bit more information. And then it sends us an email um, both ways. So, Are you guys tracking the sales process? So when somebody comes to your to a landing page, you know what landing page they land on. You know if they get to the checkout screen and abandon it or if they click to 
you know, if they, where in the process the abandons are happening or, you know, what your conversion rates are. Are you guys tracking all that type of stuff? Yeah, we're using KISS metrics for that. So, and this is just a way of um, when you get to a certain page, it'll record it, similar to like Google Analytics or something like that. But you can also do other um, kind of in depth things like um, with JavaScript events or other kind of, um, you know, things that they do on the website basically. And so we just said, okay, you know, from when you get to the website, you view all the themes, you view a specific theme, you view the pricing, and you're on the purchase page, and then you actually purchase. Like those are, there's several different steps there. Um, and it's it's hard sometimes because you know people might be coming back because of a newsletter or something like that, so they might have you know already had a prior knowledge and or relationship, and some people might just be coming from like an AdWord somewhere where they have no idea. Um, and so, how do you kind of compare those? And you know, I think we have a bit to bit of work to do on that front to to understand. Okay, the people who are coming. Are they coming because they already knew about us, or are they coming or are they purchasing something because they just heard about it for the first time and think it's a good idea? You know. Are you guys doing advertising right now, or is it all organic? Um, I think there are AdWords. I'm not sure about many more details beyond that. So, Okay. So one last question about this. How do you stay – I mean, you're many months into it now. You know, you're in kind of the grueling sales process. You know, it, it sounds like you guys are kind of before the hockey stick curve up, you know, where this is selling – 10, 20, 30 of these themes every day, you know, so that you've got the, you're, you're getting some sales here and there, but how do you stay motivated through all of this to continue to put the time in month after month? Sure. And I mean, it remains to be seen also if, you know, are our assumptions correct, you know, that the market is big enough or that, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I think part of it is just saying, okay, we have this kind of core of what we've done so far. You know, do we want to continue working with that or do we want to kind of change it? You know, we've talked about, you know, is there something like this for Python people or for .NET people, you know, that sort of thing, and using what we have currently and trying to expand in that way. Or is it more, okay, we have all this Rails stuff, Ruby stuff, we want to focus on that area for a long time, you know. And I think, you know, it's just kind of continually every week or every few weeks, you know, making sure that we get significant things things going forward. I think that um, is good. And obviously, uh, talking to you guys is, is exciting because it's, it shows you there's a lot still you can do, a lot still you can learn. So, um, Absolutely. What's one, if, if you could tell somebody one tip of the really one of the best things you've learned, and I'm really putting you on the spot here, I realize, <laughs> but what, what is that one tip or lesson that you learned that you would say, guys, let me save you some pain. You know, here's a mistake we made or here's something that we failed to do for a while, but when we did it, we saw some, you know, good effect from this. So do this early on because it will work well. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think people are always looking for that one thing, but I think it's like a lot of small things. And, but, you know, I would say for, for me at least, I think charging early and even charging before you officially launch is a really good strategy to kind of validate your idea and validate your product. Um, like we, before we actually like launched with a capital L, which I, I think it's kind of becoming a little more outdated nowadays because people are just going to start using your system when it actually works or whatever. But we had this list of people who were interested, and we said, hey, you're our exclusive beta you know, users. We're going to give a few themes away for like $5 each or $10 each or whatever, which is like, you know, not, I think they go, the cheapest one is like $150. So, 
Um, we have like three different tiers, but basically, you know, we're saying, okay, we're giving these away for free basically, but you know, you have to pay us a little bit of money. So I thought that was good as far as saying, okay, do they actually want it enough to be able to pay some money for it? And for me, that was pretty like validating to say, yep, we, we got our whole system working and the checkout process works and everything like that. And someone actually paying us hard money to, to buy a theme. So I thought that was really good. And that goes back into the motivation too, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you just kind of slog away for six months and not, you know, just kind of space out then, and you come up and nobody really wants to buy it or you don't, you're not sure if they do or not. But once you, once you know that someone does then it's like, okay, cool. That's a lot. That's very motivating. So. Excellent. And so if somebody listening to this is interested in, in buying some themes, where do they go to get these themes? So go to railsthemes.com. Awesome. Thanks for talking to us about that, Anthony. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. With that, we will jump into our five Talonopoly links that we chose from the last two weeks that we think you will like. And number one, how Vimeo saves 50% on EC2 by playing a smarter game. This is uh, posted on highscalability.com, which is a great website uh, if you're interested in scaling topics at all. They post a lot of great stuff on here. But really what Vimeo is doing is that they've got to transcode just an amazing amount of videos. So... They, they're spinning up so many instances on AWS. Anything they can do to bring that cost down is going to be significant for them. And the fact that they, by playing the games that we're about to talk about, can save 50% was a real eye-opener to me. It's, you, know, the, you need to be knowledgeable about the marketplace of AWS instances. You can't just spin up an instance and spin it down and say, I'm saving money. You really need to be smart about the types of instances that they have. And they have spot instances, reserve instances, and regular instances. So here's some of the rules that Vimeo uses to try to optimize that. He said never bid more than threshold, which they set at 80% of the on-demand price, which the on-demand is just your highest price. Uh, that's if you were just to go out and just get an unreserved non-spot instance right then. And I actually didn't know what a spot instance was. Do you guys use AWS? Yeah, that yeah, much? help help school us. I mean, yeah. I, I think that would be very beneficial. Yeah. So, and I I just looked this up like an hour ago. But a spot instance is you can bid on these. I believe they were ones that were probably already reserved, but they're idle, so they're not currently being used at all. What you can do is you can take it away from that person. And I, I may not have to do with reserved. I don't know exactly what pool these are coming out of, but mm -hmm. these are ones that are being bid on. And so it basically goes to the highest bidder that you can get these idle instances that are ready to go. So are, are they, do you know if it's like, oh, this is Ubuntu 10.10? .10? Well, you put what you want on them. So I guess, is this, is this like a fake, is this a, a fake demand that Amazon's creating? So, it, I mean, the way that I think about it is Amazon wants to fulfill as much demand as they can. So they have like, let's say 80% of their capacity with like normally reserved instances, but they want to have their customers be able to scale up. Um, but in the event that they say scale up to like 85% of Amazon's total capacity, then they want to say, hey, we have these 15% of servers that we want to use. So you can bid on this time. And, you know, in the event that someone wants to pay a lot of money or like normal rate for this, then we're, we're going to give your instance away. But otherwise, you know, say you're using like SETI at home or whatever that thing, you know, like scientific computing, you can use these um, kind of like 15% of Amazon's capacity to use your own computing and for a lot cheaper yep. um, because they can't guarantee that you're going to get to keep it well and that's the key is that 
they're never 100% utilized. They have all these servers in their data center that some portion at any given time is sitting idle. So, so these would be the ones to use for my Bitcoin mining. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And try to find, I don't know if they do GPUs, but I know for Bitcoin mining, you definitely want to use GPUs. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so they're willing to sell these for less than the full on-demand price because they were going to sit idle anyway. So they figure, why not just create an eBay-style marketplace out of that extra capacity and we'll just auction it off. So that's what spot instances are. And then reserved is, let's say you know you need this server for a whole year or a month or two, you might as well just reserve it. And because you're reserving it, you're, you're guaranteeing you will pay for it for that given time. And so they're going to give it to you because you're guaranteeing they're going to give it to you cheaper. Because it's all about, they're just doing whatever they can to bring that utilization up beyond what their average is. They want to get as close to 100% of utilizing that data center as possible. The Amazon is crazy. They are. There's there. This is insane because if you think about Vimeo and then you had Netflix entire like you know architecture is powered by AWS. I mean, they they are nuts. This if it started out as a little side business and I don't know the numbers, but I'm sure this is contributing significantly to the bottom line at Amazon these days. Mm-hmm. Gracious. Yeah, this, this has got to be making. I, I would think well over. It would be billions. I would think in revenue per yeah. year off of AWS at this point. So a few more rules here. I won't go through all of them. If you're into this, if you need this sort of thing, that's awesome because you must be working at a pretty high scale. You should go check this article out and look at these rules because if you're just buying, if you're using tens or hundreds of instances, you probably need to get a little smarter about how you're buying them to save some money. But they also say here, uh, not more than 10 open spot requests at any time. Bid 10% more than the average price over the last hour. So that's how they mathematically figure out what to bid. So they can just have that automatic. And buy reserve instance capacity to meet non-peak hour loads. So that that was interesting to me. I wish they gave a... And this does link... This article links to their blog post. And I'm not sure if it's in there. But how long do you have to reserve it for? I wonder how long they generally reserve this stuff for. Uh, And then never kill spots. Let Amazon do it. I don't know enough about spots to know why you'd want to do that, but that, I thought that was interesting. My guess is like 95% of people, you know, are just going to use Heroku or just use like one or two servers or something like that. It's only like when you have like tens and 20 and 30 and 40 servers or people yep. at your company that you're going to probably use a lot of these. But I think it's, it's cool to keep in mind. Absolutely. Something to shoot for. Yeah. All right. Link number two, web design is 95% typography. This <laughs> is... <laughs> I laugh. I'll I'll let you go ahead with this one, Brandon. No, we talked about this before we started the show, and of course I didn't read any of it. But now I am starting to read uh, what this guy's saying, and and what's funny is he uses the quote that today we are inundated with such an immense flood of printed matter that the value of the individual work has de- depreciated. But what's funny about this is this is too damn long. Didn't read. It is. I didn't, I didn't read, read it. And, and you know what? 95% of the, of, of the web is typography for someone who's obsessed with typography and who likes to write. But the fact is, is I don't like to write, nor do I like to read. And I would rather have an experience that is not just typography, but something that's leading me through the story of the product that I'm experiencing. Right? So I don't know if I buy this. It is kind of funny, just as a side note, that as you scroll down and you're reading the blog about – 
almost halfway down, a little pop-up starts saying you Four have minutes. five minutes left. <laughs> or it starts in six minutes. Yeah, I'm like, five like minutes. I don't down. watch a 90-second YouTube video because it's too long. Right. Right? So, yes, this works, and typography is important. There's no doubt about it. And so I'm not discrediting this dude. But to say that it's 95% is, um, is, is irrational, and maybe it makes sense in his own you know, mind, um, but it doesn't, I don't think, for the rest of the population. Well, part of our job here is to kind of distill this down for, because for the too long didn't read, uh, we got you know, to give you the bite-sized version of it. So let me just go through some of the high points here, and then we can finish with do we still think it's bullshit? So too few fonts, resolution too low. He says in here that a lot of people will say, well, there aren't that many fonts. There's Arial, Helvetica. On the web, there's just not that many fonts for me to choose from. Why should I care? And he says that's really bumpkiss now because you can use web fonts. You can pull in any font you want now. So that's really gone away. And he also points back to, I guess, during the Renaissance, uh, the Italian Renaissance, typographers had one font to work with, yet that period produced some of the most beautiful typographical work. So... Kind of interesting, but again, kind of a type typography geek type of thing. Mm -hmm. Choosing a typeface is not typography. This one I like the best because so many times you hear typography and you just think web fonts, and that's what we just talked about. So what else would type? What else would this be? What else does typography deal with? Treat text as a user interface, and he actually shows a little image in here of a mockup that uses information architecture, which is just how should you lay out. And we did talk about this during the front end episode. Uh, so check that out if you want more detail on this. But he talks about how you would lay out not just the positioning of things, but you know you want a structure to it. You want sizes to indicate information as well. You know, at the end of the day, the information that you are conveying, as much as you're saying, don't give me too much verbosity, there, Brandon. Mm-hmm. Really, the information though, if unless you're doing a heavy picture type website, it is going to be text. So it arguably is the most important part of the site. So having it structured well seems to reason that it would be very important no no yeah i i agree that that again our the the typography is important but this gentleman is saying it's 95 percent and 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 now if we're saying information architecture is really just positioning of text and that those you know that i again i i think it's more of a sensational but now what's interesting is this thing i think was written in 2006 yes october 19 2006. 2006 yep so I don't know if that means anything, but I mean, again, it's, it's, point. it's too long. I didn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, let's move on to the next link then. And if you do, if you are interested in that, unlike Brandon, there are a lot of resources at the bottom of that blog post that I, I would recommend you check out. He's done It'll a good job. Five minutes to get to the bottom of yeah, it. Yeah. Or six plus minutes. All right. Link number three, tape a collection of Q related classes for Android and Java and this one, this library is made by Square. What this is is uh, basically for things like file uploads. They Square really wanted a way to ensure those file uploads were going to go through, and there wasn't a native queuing system for them to use, as far as I know. So they created this tape library that allows the the file uploads to be queued up. You could do this with pretty much any command. It works along with a task queue service. So then you can uh, in, you can. I'll know you can feel better that that <laughs> upload is going to keep retrying until that upload finally goes through. It's not going to fail for some reason and be done, or you're not going to hang up even more. So you're not going to hang up the user experience while it sits there and does the upload. It can be done in the background over the task queue service. 
seems like this is would be pretty awesome for anything, any Android app that could background any of these processes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we've I've written stuff like this for iPhone apps, so I could see how this would be really useful. I'm excited that Square is starting to get noticed more for their open source contributions too. I like yeah. seeing these things. A cool company. I like Square. Totally. Yeah, we use them all the time. All right, link number four, version I, search engine for software libraries. I think that title, though, is a little bit misleading. That's what they bill themselves as. And I played around with this for about 10 minutes before it dawned on me what the real value of this is. Because at first, you go to their homepage and you get this text box. You can choose a programming language like Ruby or Java or Node. <laughs> And you type in some text, what you want to search for, maybe JSON libraries. Hit search. It's pretty fast. It returns a whole bunch of links. But we can pretty much get that elsewhere. Where I think this thing shines and the need that it fills is that you can track your own libraries in this. And it's smart enough to be able to track the dependencies for those libraries. And let's say you've built a JSON Ruby library that depends on, you know, maybe somehow it uses curl. And it uses curl version 104 for the uh, Ruby gem curl 104 and then 105 comes out this thing can notify you saying hey your dependency is out of date now so you don't have to worry about checking that or you know maybe a month from now you get you know some pull request or some some user saying hey you know this isn't working with you know or you know I want to use the new the new version of curl can you update this so kind of neat from that aspect I don't know what do you guys think about this <laughs> yeah, I have, I have no thoughts. I don't I've know. Got nothing, dude. Nothing. Well, this as, is boring. As you Sorry. write gems, I thought maybe you'd be interested in this, Anthony. You know, you have a gem now. How do you track? You just manually track the dependencies, or do you have dependencies on that gem? Yeah, there are some dependencies. I don't How know. Do it's pretty that? easy, I guess. Like using Bundler, at least. Like you can just say, I want to update certain dependencies or not. You can even see what things have newer. Um, versions and whether you want to use them and if you have a good test suite then you can say okay did it break anything or not you know but True. i could see how it would be useful for other projects do um, you do you uh have a specific version that you depend on for all of your dependencies um bundler usually loose? says you know um Things like I want a version that is greater than or equal to this version, but if it increments a minor version or a major version, then I want to not use it. I only want to use patch levels or something like that. So it has pretty fine-grained control. Okay. And they're using Bootstrap, and they didn't even change the damn blue buttons of the buttons. <laughs> Excellent. All right, our last link is prefix, prefix free, break free from CSS prefix hell. And this is by Leah Vero. I think I'm pronouncing that right. She uh, she's come up with so many great libraries. This is yet another awesome library she's made. And it's just a small JavaScript library. It's under six kilobits that allows you to not have to use any vendor prefixes. It, you just use all the standard, all the web standards. And this library will inject into the CSS the vendor prefixes for the browsers that need them you know, when your client comes to visit your site. So you don't have to worry about it anymore. I don't know why why you wouldn't use this. Why would you not use this, Brandon? No, I'm using it. I'm going to use it tomorrow, or actually probably tonight. <laughs> I know. And I I'll, tonight. I'll report back to whether it worked as well as possible. Excellent. 
Well, that wraps up this episode of the podcast. As always, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, find us on iTunes. Leave us a glowing review. We'll love you forever. And until next time, keep hacking. <laughs>